Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 83. No amount of off-farm income could replace the benefit and the joy that we have of, of working together as a family on this. So, yeah, we, we're just very thankful to God that we can do this. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating costs. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's show, we have Nathan Smelscher, P.A. Lamb. We talk about him getting started with no experience in sheep and his journey to where he is now, some of the hiccups he's had along the road, as well as some successes. Really good episode, and I think you'll enjoy it. Before we get to Nathan, 10 seconds about my farm. And we're going to not talk too much about the farm this week. We're actually going to talk about the Noble Research Institute Essentials of Regenerative Grazing. Been able to attend that class and really enjoying it. A big treat was when I got there, Jim Garish was one of the facilitators. So that was very exciting. Uh, I will have more information how that went in coming weeks. Right now as we're recording it, day one is finished and I've got a couple more days and I've really enjoyed day one and looking forward to the next couple of days. I think this this particular course is the last one for this calendar year, but as soon as they get them scheduled for next year, we'll be announcing them. Let's talk to Nathan. Nathan, we're excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Cal. Good to be here. And thank you so much for all your work in producing this repository of information. It's been just very beneficial. Thank you. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And, and I think this episode is going to be one of those episodes that's going to be a resource for other people. But this episode almost didn't happen. That, that's right. Uh, as, I, as I told you, I was considering backing out. And uh, the, the further I get into grazing, the less I know. And as yes. I considered what, what to discuss today or how to answer questions or whatever might come up, I just I told my friend Jordan Snyder I was thinking about, of backing out. And he said, really, I hope you do it because in 10 years you can come back and listen to it and laugh at all the things you used to think. Good advice, I guess. But in all seriousness, no, I, I benefit from people of all different experience levels who you have on. 
and there's there's so much good out there. So it's hard for me to see how anything I offer here will be that useful. And yet at the same time, five years ago, I knew a lot less than I know now. I hope it's of value to somebody. Thank you for having me on. I'm sure it will be. You know, sharing our journeys and what we're doing, someone may connect with your story and they, you may say something everyone else has said, but the way you say it or your journey connects with them and it causes them to take that next step. And that's what we're hoping, that each of us just implements one more regenerative practice just as we're working forward to, to make this earth a better place. One thing you mentioned there was about in 10 years, I think Jordan was being kind of optimistic that that'll happen in 10 years. Because I have episodes that I, we started this three and a half years ago now, which is crazy. And I listen to some of those early episodes and I'm like, Cal, just be quiet, quit talking. So, you know, and I, I, one of my early guests, I was talking to him the other day and I was saying, Hey, I need to get you back on because we're, we're planning some catch up episodes and we'll, we'll cover what's, what's happened since then. And he's like, Oh. And he says, I said some crazy stuff on that episode. <laughs> ketchup and mustard or just ketchup? Yeah, just, just ketchup. It may be a little mustard, too. We're all learning. It's a process. I, I hope no one thinks I have it figured out because I surely don't. But I'm, I'm trying to do better each day. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk probably about a lot of mistakes that I've made in, in my short time doing this. And then when we get to the overgrazing section, if we go where I think it's going to go... That's stuff that I changed my mind on within about the past week. So, yeah, so it's, it's this is real time. It's uh it's live. So, it it is wonderful. Well, Nathan, let's get started by you telling us about yourself and your operation. Okay, thanks. Yeah, so in 2016, Cal, we moved to Pennsylvania and bought a 100-acre farm. My wife and I, and at the time we had two children. I had been an engineer with an oil company in West Texas. And they're a great company, hard times in the oil patch about that time. So they were offering severance packages and this fit our goals, our longer term plans, holistic for the family. There's some, some brethren who are up here who we wanted to be close to and it's closer to both my wife's parents and my parents. So I'd not lived here before actually, but we took the leap and moved up and I had had some exposure to cow calf prior to that, to a beef cattle stalker operation in Wyoming. And so... Really, I had not been exposed to sheep, but reading Stockman Grass Farmer, probably a Jim Garrish article in particular, that influenced me to think really up up in this part of the country above at, at this latitude with the uh, the rainfall we have here and, and, and the damage cattle would do to the sod potentially in this area, you know, sheep are a good option. And, and it also fits the East Coast ethnic markets. So we got up here and dove into sheep. Boy, it's it's been... Uh, a little bit of a roller coaster. In one sense, there's been steady growth, but in the other sense, boy, we've made a lot of mistakes. You know, we've had hair sheep for a number of years now, and I guess I might as well admit this. I've probably said it on the podcast before. We got those sheep the first time, or when we got them, we thought they were going to be miniature cows. We click quickly. No, I'm a slow learner. It took me a little while, but I figured out they weren't. So, yeah, that sheep. So, how did you, did you know what breed you wanted? Did you have any ideas? Did you reach out to someone to help you get started on that? That's interesting. Probably, again, influenced by the Stockman grass farmer, we chose to go with Katahdin's. Um, and they're 
a popular breed, so they're one that anybody would discover who was was in our shoes. Not not only do they behave differently than cows, the the markets work differently than a lot of the things that that we've really accepted on the beef cattle side as compared to, to cows. So they they behave differently. They're they're obviously more susceptible to some diseases. They they flock very well. We, we enjoy handling them. But then on the market side, I came in with some false assumptions. I don't. I can go there now, or we can go there later. We'll come back to that. But let's actually just talk about you getting started with sheep. Just the the aspect of getting sheep. Did you did you go to a cell barn and grab them? Did your your farm that you purchased were they ready for sheep? Uh, so the, the farm was farm was bare land. It had a little bit of old old barbed wire fence on it. It's on a slope. Bottom elevation is about fourteen hundred feet. The top of the pastures is about seventeen hundred feet. So it's pretty good, pretty good elevation. Really, really poor soils. Very, very poor soils. Very little topsoil with rocky clay underneath that. It had been grazed. The rougher sections were just grazed with cattle, nonstop, continuous uh, set stock. Better, still sloped areas were just continuously hayed. Probably nothing, nothing ever put back for for years and years and years when we got it. So the fence that was in place, there's no way it would work for, for sheep. We moved up here, and so I'd, I'd left a job. We got up here, and coming into it, I thought, you know, even if I can't line up a job up here, and I had a tentative possibility, but nothing nailed down, you know, we, we'd, we'd make a run with livestock and just take off rolling and, and be livestock from the get-go. And once I got up here and started cutting locust posts and then trying to plant them, and boy, you know, I had a, a friend that we made up here came down and brought his post pounder, and they hit the rocks in that clay and just go all kinds of crooked, and so it, it was it was more daunting than I had anticipated getting getting the infrastructure in to be able to even bring sheep onto the place. So were you going with, um, you're putting in locust post and woven wire for a exterior fence? Uh, at this point, I don't even remember what I was thinking for wire, whether woven or high tinsel, but we're, I was going to do locust posts. There's still a line of my original locust posts that uh, I basically just abandoned. <laughs> they're, they're a monument to a, to a early, you know, it, but it got to a point where I said, okay. And, and so and at the same time, I was a little bit paralyzed because we had no cash flow coming in. We had some reserves, had no cash flow coming in, and I'm realizing the expense of getting the infrastructure in and so I was scared to do anything, scared to move on that. And and so for me, jumping into an off-farm job that, that I was blessed to, to be able to jump into really got us off of high center. And then we got moving. And I ended up paying somebody to put in fence. But I will tell you, I have so much respect for the guys uh, and many of many that listen to your podcast, I'm sure, that do it with livestock from the get-go. And, and fund everything from their farm operation. Um, Sage Askin, he, if, if anybody's not listened to some of his stuff, he, he has a, uh, he was on Kit Farrow's uh, Herd Quitter podcast. And just what a guy, you know, what a guy getting in there with all his heart and, and doing people right and taking the hits. I don't, I don't think from the way I started that I can ever be where he is in the livestock game because of what he's endured to do what he did. You know, so... So my hat, my hat's off to everybody who just does it with livestock. But I went off farm to get the capital flow or get the cash flowing. Then we started spending the capital. We got the fence in place, 
And that allowed us to bring in the first sheep. I think I bought a trailer load of 40 head from a uh, guy about 25 miles away, brought in ewe lambs and threw them out there inside the fence. And boy, it, it just worked like a dream at first. So did you just, was it one big pasture? You just put them in? Yeah. So initially we, we just perimeter fenced it. So everything was fairly overgrown by that point. We didn't get the lambs till late summer, maybe late July, right? So everything just needed to be knocked down. The perimeter fence was really all we had at that point. I had ideas of just using a poly wire or netting uh, on the interior, but boy, on that slope. And, and early on, I didn't even have any kind of an ATV. And, and boy, I really overestimated my ability to, to carry posts and, and wire up and down a hill and, and really manage the sheep right. So I didn't manage it all. I tell you what, we turned a ram in in December, and come May, uh, I think that first year with those lambs, they had 1.8 lambs per ewe. Very few issues. Yeah, they raised them, and I thought, boy, this is easy. If I can do 40 head, if I can, do, yeah, well, I'm, I'm good at this. And if I can do 40 head, I think I think I can do 4,000. It's just not a not an issue. You throw them out there, and they they do it. So so yeah, a lot of a lot of hubris, and is that how you say that word, hubris? But uh, all those big words, that's and pride. You know, I, I learned, I've learned more since. So, so you got that first lamb crop out. What, what would you have done differently? Well, on the first lamb crop, so because of the way the place was overgrown, obviously it would have been better if I'd have rotated the animals from the get go, and then we could have could have made more progress faster on the place. But that was a fairly small head count, and uh, you know, and at that point, working off farm up until 2020, in fact. We retained all our ewe lambs, basically all of them. I don't remember exactly. And so we, we tried to grow the flock pretty fast from there. And 2019 was just a disaster. Things had been going so well that I brought in more ewe lambs to grow faster. And that was a wet year. My management game was not there. And boy, the barber pole worm, we, we had some real losses. And I was working a lot of hours off farm. And then coming home and running animals through a uh, you know very crude working shoot, and uh, it, it was ugly. Now th- there can be good that comes from those things, but I should not have let it get to that. Yeah, we lost a lot of animals. And that barber pole worm, and you you see a lamb or a ewe that's just not doing as well, not as as thriving like the rest of your flock. You've got to get on that. You weigh a day two days they may be dead out there right and we and we tried to go for some parasite resistant genetics or genetics that we thought were parasite resistant but ultimately you've got to manage them i mean sheep need a shepherd they've got to be managed you've got to manage your grass and 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 graze properly and we just weren't doing that but that that was a real wake-up call cal i mean really it's very small scale i mean but but for us that was a real wake-up call so we we ended up i think we had enough animals at that point and the timeline's a little fuzzy in my head that if we were going to grow, I needed to do, to do better management, but we also needed access to more grass. So we did pick up some more acreage that year. We had some permanent interior fencing put in and had the other acreage fenced around the perimeter. One of the good things that came from that, there were two ram lambs that every time we went through the animals, those two ram lambs had bright red eye membranes. Now there's better ways to look at this, right? Like uh, guys, that there, there's the producers that do fecal leg counts on uh, all their lambs. And there are some. They just do a tremendous amount of work in data collection to really prove up parasite resistance. Not merely resilience, not merely resilience, but resistance, true uh, resistance. So 
the dark red eye membranes doesn't prove true resistance, but they were rugged animals and they performed well when everybody else was suffering. So, so you know, that's one bright spot. We kept them. Our management game improved. Uh, we grew from there. It, after I went off farm or quit off farm work in 2020, uh, you know, at this point, we're really able to rotate daily. We don't rotate daily year round, not even for all the grazing season, but often we're doing daily, daily animal moves. And that makes more difference than anything. So at this point, I actually think management is a much bigger factor in managing parasites more so than animal genetics. Genetics are genetics matter, but, but you got to manage, right? You do. And you really got to get animals that are resistant. But even if you take those animals and you throw them in a pasture and leave them there and you graze that too short, you're going to lose animals to parasites. It, it doesn't matter how resistant they are. So, yeah, that management's a, a key portion. And as you're learning or learn through that, you know, we, we talk all the time on the podcast about getting started. And that first year, you had tremendous luck with that lamb crop and it, it caused you to keep going. And then you, you ran into some hurdles. We all do that. So learn from it and moving on. Wonderful. What caused you to, I, I know you're reading a Stockman grass farmer during this time, because that's kind of what led you to hair sheep. What caused you to take that next step to start rotating them? Was it the, the Barber Poe incidents or what caused you to take that next step? So really, the <laughs> I should have done that from the get-go, and I knew better. But you know, there's there's a, there's a lot going on, and the the sheep took lower priority with the off-farm stuff going on and family and all that. And so I knew we needed to, and at that point we just had to, right? And and also as time has gone on, so we've gotten better at putting in infrastructure to make and figuring out how to manage our daily moves. I mean, it it, it gets hard. So the uh, north acreage. Even at this point, I've only got, it's 87 acres and it's only divided up with permanent fence into two pastures. So I've, what I've started doing then is going in and running high tensile wire, permanent fence on the inside, disconnected from even from the perimeter fence, but it gives me something solid to run a polywire to. And so I can very quickly run polywire ahead of, ahead of the animals. Maybe I'll back fence them. And within 30 minutes, I've got animals moved onto fresh grass. So just figuring out a system that works, that makes it efficient to, to get it done has been the biggest thing for us. How did you decide? So, well, actually, let me jump back. You put in some of the high tensile wire. It gives you a nice feeding place off of to build your paddocks. You didn't go in and divide up your pastures all that great. You just gave you a feeder line that you can work off of and and do your paddocks. Yeah, so actually what I'm doing is is... It's not even a feeder line. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So rather than keep the, uh, the perimeter fence is really nice. Tangential point here, or, or uh, Austin Troyer did a podcast. I don't remember for whom. He's a guy in Ohio grazing a reclaimed mine. He was on here, uh, I think episode 24. And then I think he's been on another podcast as well. Great. Okay. One, one of the points he made that I heard was that, that most people overfence. And our, our exterior fence, I'm a little embarrassed, it is overfence. But for interior fence, so a two or three wire high tensile is plenty. That's, I mean, that's a lot. That's more than I think Austin was running generally. But I'll run a span of two or three wire high tensile within my, within my pasture where it's not in the way of anything else. 
and it might not even be connected to the hot wire on my perimeter fence that's on top of my box wire on the perimeter fence. But I found that for me, it's easier to just keep uh, the fence hot close to where the sheep actually are. So I might charge up. Oh, okay. I might charge up a segment inside a pasture and then run my poly wire off of that and not have the whole farm hot. If a branch comes down or a deer jumps over the fence and gets, you know, gets the wire twisted or, or whatever, it just doesn't cause me issues where I'm grazing. My charger's mobile, a little Speedrite 3000 on a 100-watt solar panel. I just move it around. So that's that's what I'm doing for now. And are you doing, I believe you said, all polywire, two or three strands? Yeah, so for the permanent stuff I put inside to make the polywire moves easier, that's I, I use high tensile wire on timeless T-posts. What I actually move daily would be polywire, just on the cheapest reel you can get from like Premier One or something. I think I'm good. Let's let's jump back just a little bit. Okay, yeah. Let me go. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so when you're doing your paddocks, how are you doing those? You're doing two or three strands of polywire? So I just move a single strand of polywire daily. Oh, okay. Yeah, I keep them behind a single strand. It's not 100% reliable by any means, but as long as I keep them happy, it's 95% reliable probably. Did you, how did you get to a single strand? Was that just, you just start using a single strand? Yeah, probably just laziness. Um, you know, why do two if I can get by with one, which can backfire because then you can train them to jump one and train them to jump two probably. But we had some failures with it. And, and in fact, when I was string out my polywire too far and have way too many step-in posts and try to move that whole system around, it, it would be hard to keep everything tight and uh, keep them to where they felt contained. Again, once I have, you know, box wire on, on one side metal high tensile wire on the other side, and then I just run two single strands of poly. I, I think really what it is is it's a lot easier for me to get in there and just do a good job, put it in, move it frequently, and that's what keeps them happy, if that makes sense. When it gets too complex and I've got 200 T-posts or 200 step-in posts out there and poly wire strung out every which way, it's hard to get it all moved and get it set up well in the next spot, and and we're just too far off of anything permanent to for for me to have have a way to do it efficiently. Yeah, one of the, the goals I have for 2024, it sounds crazy to be talking about it, but one of my goals, I, I've just started a project. I weaned a few calves, and I put a few lambs that I just weaned in there. And and the lambs are oh, six months old because we don't wean our ewe lambs. We just leave them on the ewe. I thought, I want to try this because I'm, I'm wanting to do least are putting some sheep on leased land. We run all of our sheep on our on my dad's place here. It's all nicely contained and works well, but I'm I'm wanting to branch out. So I have those dozen ewe lambs with some weaned heifers, and I'm hoping my goal is they bond and become a single unit where I'm gonna leave them pinned up pretty tight and just feed them hay in the corral. And, and get them hopefully bonded so that I can put them out there and do a single wire because I think about doing two wires and I can do it, but I don't really want to. <laughs> labor, is a, labor is a factor. It is. I was, so I got some uh, meat goats earlier this year, just a handful, and I was running those in electro netting. But man, that's just, that is a lot of work moving that and and when every plant's got a hook on it or a thorn on it to grab it, it's just awful to deal with. Now, if I was doing it out in the open, 
and I did do some out in the open. That wasn't a problem. I could put it in without a problem. It just it was a little bit more work for this lazy farmer. Wait, I'm not lazy. I'm an efficient farmer. You know what efficiency is? It's it's laziness with good PR. So I need a PR person. Maybe you can help me out on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. So my goal is I'm going to try that single wire and work them towards that. So it's exciting that you're having decent success with that. I can see how if you try to hold them in a spot too long, that's not enough to keep them in place. If you're not giving them enough forage. I think your, your summary of, of netting is exactly what I've found as well. A little more on the single poly wire. Man, I hope that works for you. We... In the, the summer of, it was last summer, in fact, we were exceptionally dry here in northern Pennsylvania. And, I, I mean, it, it rained that year. I think it it rained in April, and I don't think it rained again till September or something. No, maybe August. I mean, it just unheard of dry conditions here. So there's some other learnings I could mention from that. But long story short, and to, to what you're talking about, neighbors opened up their hay fields because nobody was making any second cutting and so we took our sheep onto the stubble and that's all there was but took sheep onto the stubble and we were putting eight or nine acres a day behind a single poly wire and had the whole flock behind that and no other fence and for the most part now i did not sleep well with the sheep out there like that and i didn't feel comfortable putting a dog out with them either you know with the fence like that but for for the most part you know in that kind of desperate circumstance they stayed in, and it, it, if we moved them every day, it was good. I think a time or two I pushed it maybe to the third day, and that was too much. You know, one one goes through, and then they're all coming through. Yeah, I, I heard today, you know, a joke where a teacher asked little Johnny, you've got 17 sheep and six get out. How many sheep do you have? And little Johnny says zero, and the teacher's like, no, that's not right. And Johnny says, Johnny says, you don't know sheep. <laughs> Johnny's right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they they find a spot and they're they're through it. It's amazing how small a spot they can find that a whole flock can fit through. It's also amazing when one gives that first meh and they know the difference. They know the kind of meh that means, hey, I found an outlet. And the whole flock, whether they're within sight or not, just immediately begins to flow that direction. Talking about what's amazing with sheep, their consensus model on the way when you drive them and the direction they're going, it's like... You hit a certain point in that flock. You know, if you're moving cattle and if you're working with Bud Williams, some of his handle livestock handling, you're using that shoulder as a point of reference. What I have not figured out is a point of reference for a flock because at a certain point, they all immediately turn the other way. And I'm like, who, who decided that? How'd that happen? So I have found you can't drive sheep in a straight line. You know, they're different than cattle. But it's just interesting, that flock and how they all know at one time. It's it's like what you said. One makes the right sound. They all know there's an opening. We can go somewhere else. Yeah, it is really fun to, to herd them and move them. I'm glad you mentioned Bud Williams. I mean, that I'm so thankful for, for people who introduced me to him. Not to him personally, but to uh, his material. Of course, he's passed now. But, boy, I've got – someone gave me, actually, his 18-hour – hard drive the video of all a lot of his trainings and material oh that that is that's fantastic stuff i i would say if you're doing much moving of animals it's it's easily worth it 
Yeah. So between our two farms, or we have the two acreages, and they're two miles apart. And then we frequently hit a third acreage that's two about two miles from both of those. So like a two by two by two triangle. And we just herd the sheep between farms. We don't trailer them or anything. I don't even own a stock trailer. You know, if there's anything that I think we've done better than some other things, I'm not going to say we've done it perfectly because we've certainly had some train wrecks. But but it's been it's been so much fun and it's been good for the kids herding sheep back and forth, and it's it's good for the sheep. You know, it's fairly low stress. The neighbors have been very patient with sheep on the road. <laughs> you know, 700 head blocking it was our our little back roads and somebody comes along and you know slowly eases through them with the car and it's just a lot of fun for everybody so far we'll try to keep neighbors happy with us but so far they enjoy it how does that work with driving them between places for one how are you doing it and i'm assuming you're using multiple people to get that that completed how's it working for you we do it's, it's working great some days we get careless and fail to anticipate things that might happen. And then we have, you know, a little bit of a, a train wreck. For instance, uh, if, if lambs are too young, yeah, we try to lamb one place and then we're kind of stuck there for the better part of two months. When, when we try to move a flock with really young lambs and the disorder and the cacophony as the dams are looking for their, you know, little twins everywhere, we can't keep them going the same direction. But once the lambs are... Almost two months old, we heard them. It's a lot more fun when the lambs are even older. I guess at this point, we've got a system. It was intimidating at first, but at this point, we've got a system. The, the, the kids, let's see, Titus and Benjamin took my father-in-law, and they moved them with no other help. And my father-in-law has no experience with, with sheep whatsoever or, or cattle or anything like that. And so, you know, they've got enough experience. I trusted them to take a group alone. And that was a smaller group, but they took them the two miles. And yeah, so it's, we've gotten comfortable with it. And the sheep have gotten trained as well. Well, very good. And you bring up about lambing. Tell us how how you manage lambing, what it looks like. Okay, yeah, that's a, boy, that's a good good question. So early on, I mentioned we had the, the 40 or so ewe lambs, and they lambed with no issue. And... I don't remember at what point, probably somewhere north of 150 head. Well, let me back up. So we lamb on pasture. We originally were lambing in May or April. We backed that up to May for the sake of weather and, and the stage of grass oh, okay. growth, right? Here, grass begins to grow about the middle of April, but there's not, it's not in that, you know, late stage two until May. So we backed lambing up to May. Most of the sheep lamb out in the first... 18 days. Very seldom do to use lamb in that second period, that second gestation cycle, I guess. Not second gestation, second, you know what I'm trying to say. The second fertility cycle. They, 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 mostly, they mostly all get bred and a lamb out in 17 days. So as numbers increase then, and this is, I, this is another thing I failed to anticipate, the chaos that comes from multiple ewes dropping lambs coincidentally and five-year-old dominant ewes that are five minutes from lambing next to a, you know, a ewe lamb that's lambing and, and they'll steal the lamb and they'll box it like a basketball player. They'll box that like a center under the hoop. They'll box that little lamb out and won't let her get to her own lamb. And so we've, we've got to be out there. I've got to be out there about all the time during lambing and keeping those things straight. And, you know, I've learned to pick lambs up by their front legs and just carry them by the front legs out through a gate, you know, lead the offender 
through a gate, shut the gate, come back with the lamb and give it back to his mom. And uh, usually give us issues. Beyond that, you know, we get rid of. Now, I was talking to a fella, Aaron Helmick in West Virginia, and he's been on some podcasts too. He was telling me easy care sheep are a solution to that. Uh, and if you introduce that Romanov blood in, they are much more faithful to specifically their own lambs and much less likely to steal lambs or have their lambs stolen. Um, so that might be something for some people to look at. Oh, that That is interesting because I, I'll be honest, we're not lambing as many as you and lambing season drives me crazy. When we first started, we were banding and tagging lambs the uh, day they hit the ground, just like we do cattle. And then we backed off of banding them. We don't even band any of our, we sell them as intact rams now. And this year, I didn't tag any lambs because I'm trying to to not interrupt that bonding of the mom and the lambs. And, and I thought I could accept it, but it's driving me a little crazy because I don't know who's out of who. And, and not that I use that information to great results. I like having that information. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do it next year. And I haven't quite got that figured out because the other thing I, I like to do at the end of three weeks of lambing, Everything that's going lamb has basically lambed. And we have the last few years, lambing slows down. We load up everything that's left and sell it. I know when we do that, someone got some bargains because there's probably some ewes in there that's getting ready to drop. They just didn't do it on time for us. But then we sell, there's going to be some ewes in there open. And we've just made it that actually when it lines up with the next sale, we load up everything that doesn't have a lamb and they go to town. And that's worked well, but without moving the ewes that haven't lambed each day, I don't know how to tell which lambs don't have ewes. And then, you know, if a lamb's not doing well, you don't know, you know, if you find a lamb that's not nursing, you can either sit out there for an hour and wait to figure out, you know, what's going on. So I'm the same way. I like to tag them, you know, within 24 hours, have the lambs tagged and identified with the dam. And I think I'll continue to do that myself, but... Boy, it's tempting to just leave them out there and let them sort it out from from a labor standpoint. I, on on the balance, though, I like to know how my individual use perform, and, and I don't know a way to know that unless I tag those lambs right right there after birth. I agree. I thought this year didn't lamb them at birth, trying to promote that strong bond and not get in there and mess up anybody because I've had use that I go tag their lamb. And then the ewes, then I've got a big problem because that ewe ran a halfway across the pasture and she won't come back. And we get rid of those. Just, just ship them. Yeah. <laughs> that, that sounds reasonable to me because I really think next year, my, my thought this year was I'll wait till they're two, three weeks old. I'll run them through the chute. I'll tag them and then I can figure them out. No, I can't. That's, that's right. even more work. So right. I'm, I'm thinking right now, next year I will tag them first day they're born just so i have that information and and if they want to run across the pasture they may be on the next trip to town yeah and we've we've noticed big improvements by getting rid of those ewes you know it, it is infuriating when you're out there and you go to tag a lamb and the dam the 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 d-a-m the dam the mom takes off and yeah <laughs> sounded like i was saying something else there. but she she takes off and uh goes running through the flock looking for her lamb because when you pick people who don't have sheep don't understand but you pick that lamb up, she completely cannot see where her lamb is and does not even know where it is. When you, when you pick it up off the ground, it's like, 
where'd my lamb go? Oh, I think it's 100 miles east. You know, and she's gone, and she's going to disturb every other new pair of dam, dams and lambs that's bonding. It's like a squirrel crossing a road. Yeah, so we make a note. Yeah, we make a note of those because they just disrupt everything, and they leave. And we really, a couple years of that, and we don't have many of those anymore. So, so when are you... So you mentioned you're lambing in May. When are you marketing your lambs? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's that's a function of how much grass we have left. So and, and the weight of the lambs and what the market is doing. So uh ram lambs, I think we sold our earliest ram lambs this year in August. They were they're really nice. We didn't wean them until I think let's see, late it was August 29th, if I remember the date of that New Holland sale. And so May, June, July, August, so four months. So we weaned them at four oh, months and, and shipped that first load straight out. I want to say they were a 77-pound average off the farm. Saw quite a bit of shrink. I think they were about 72 pounds through New Holland. I thought that was bad. But so this this is I'm getting better data each year. Uh, we saw, I think that comes out to about 7% shrink. And I think we shipped them the Monday of the sale on that occasion. The next load or a future load... I shipped lambs out, and I shipped them Sunday morning, and I had weights on them too, and I, th- I saw something like an. I never actually went back and averaged averaged it, but just roughly, it was roughly like an eighteen percent shrink on those animals through auction. I could not believe the weight. I saw the price per pound and thought, well, that's great, and I saw the check and I said, whoa, that's short. The shrink was incredible. You know, the more the more data we get, the more we can make those decisions. So one thing is, we're not shipping lambs a day in advance of auction anymore. And that was worse than shipping them earlier because we had we shipped them earlier. I mean, they'll have 3,000, you know, you, you know, New Holland, they'll have 3,000 head a week go through there. And if you ship them late and they have a lot of goats or sheep and no space, they just throw them in the back somewhere, no food, no hay, no water. Boy, they shrink hard. But that, that has a real cost. So, you know, we'll learn some things along those lines. Yeah, uh, those weights sound pretty good, though. Yeah, I, I, we've gotten better. Going forward, so I see more value right now, and I was running numbers this week. I see more value right now in running fewer ewes and having the stockpiled grass in the fall. You know, when growth really slows down, being able to stockpile enough grass to keep my lambs later. Here's here's where the sheep, not only are sheep different than cattle, I'm, I'm learning more and more about the ethnic markets that we sell into. And those markets are different than cattle markets. So coming a little bit, I'm definitely not a, I was exposed to beef. I can't claim to be, you know, to know a whole lot. For sure, but you know, Kit Farrow's done a good job making the case that rather than run a bunch of big cows, I'm, I'm making a, making a comparison here. Rather than run a bunch of big cows to try to have a bunch of big calves, you're better off running smaller cows, having smaller calves, but they wean at a higher percent of the maternal weight. You have more of them because they're, they're smaller, so they're more efficient. You got more of them per acre. And they sell at a higher price per pound, right? So that that's the that's the beef world, and that that all makes sense. So coming to sheep, I thought, well, you know, lamb weight, I'm not going to chase weights, and so I ended up being pretty content to send lambs off early or light. Well, that's really a folly in the sheep markets. For one thing, the <laughs> the lighter animals don't go for more per pound. The ethnic market recently, in past years, uh, in recent years is just flooded with lightweight lambs that's not really what they want. So that, yeah, so the ethnic sheep markets are actually, unlike maybe the beef markets were, or maybe they still are, I don't know, 
the ethnic sheep markets are paying for the weight. So I've, I've got like the uh, New Holland report from Monday right here in front of me. I guess this is a week ago Monday. And I'm looking at the prices on hair sheep, what they went for. And, and for what it's worth, the, it's hard to get an accurate report on this market. But the reporter that's there now, the USDA reporter, does a, does a better job than she, she does a pretty good job. But price on lambs. So you have 45-pound lambs going for 235 You've got 102 pound lambs going for 235, 100 weight, uh, and, and and you go up and down between them, and you, what you see is it's a function, not of the weight of the animal, it's a function of how meaty the animal is for its weight. So over on the right, and yeah, I didn't used to pay any attention to this. If anybody's seeing on here, the the this dressing over here is all important, and it either says average, high, or low, and that's what they want. They want an animal that, that with a carcass that yields. Uh, and, and the number that I'm told is 52% hanging weight versus live weight. So one of the things, and this is a, you know, we're, we're going to start focusing more on carcass quality. We, we hit about the middle of the market, but if we'll grow, if we'll grow our lambs bigger, well, that's, that's more revenue per you. And our you count is what drives our cost. Cause that every you takes one hay bale to get through winter, right? For us. So. Fewer ewes means less spent on hay, and if we grow those lambs out longer, you know lambs go through like a teenage phase where they get real lanky, especially the Katahdins, and they get real lanky in the, that five-month age, but if you can get them past that, then they really begin to bulk up and, and dress out a little bit, and that's where we want to have our lambs. So I don't remember how I got on this. I just started rambling because I wanted to talk about this stuff, but <laughs> but I do, I do think this was a folly, and I, th I think it's good for people to hear because especially in the circles that we're in and the grass and the grazing circles there's a lot of push on low input yeah absolutely low input sheep you know low cost hair sheep you know bring in some saint croix but more and more i'm realizing we gotta have carcasses and and the market signals in the case of the ethnic sheep markets they're begging us please put some meat on these things and if you do we'll pay you for it so do, do you think you can get that um, carcass quality up just with your Katahdins or do you think you need to bring in a, a different breed of ram? Yeah, I'd make a lot of people mad if I said I couldn't do it with Katahdins. There are definitely, yeah, and there are definitely people. There's one producer in New York who I, I wanted to refer people to on here and they are phenomenal and do a ton of data. But they said, no, we make more mistakes than we do things right. And yet, you know, I look at them and I just, I so admire them. And, and they're, so they're, they're one outfit and they're selling Katahdins at over a hundred pounds into, into their markets and they yield well. They do loin eye scans on, on meat thickness. So it, it can be done with Katahdins. Certainly Ulf Kinsel is a guy in New York around the Finger Lakes. He's a good resource for people and sheep, whitecloversheepfarm.com. And he runs white dorpers, short, thick, stocky animals, far stockier than the, the typical Katahdin. And so those animals will dress out a lot lighter but with a lot higher carcass yield, even just on grass. So, so for us, I mean, I mean, go, go and look to this. Anybody who's listening to this, go and look at what Ulf Kinsel is doing or look at some of the Katahdin producers that are getting them up there above 100 pounds and getting those yields. For us, what we've found in our operation, I, I think is working, is going with about a 50-50 Dorper Katahdin or even 25% Dorper Katahdin and getting a fleshier Katahdin that, that still has a pretty good terminal size. 
some of our animals yield, some don't when we take them in at this point, though. I notice when I look at my Katahdins, you know, there there seems to be, at least in my flock, two different body types. I get a little bit more compact ewe that carries more meat on her, and then I get some lanky ones. Mm-hmm. And those taller, lankier sheep I like because of the size. But to be honest, if I start looking at dressing percentage, it's probably that compact ewe that, that would her lambs would probably dress out better. I would think so too, Cal. I, I, I'm not an expert on it, but I, that's what I would think, at least until you grew them out longer, you know, at the lower weights for sure. Yeah. So interesting. We tried to hold our ram lambs till January and we just grow, we just grow them slow, but we don't get, I don't know, I'd like for them to get bigger, but there's a certain breakage point in our prices in January that if I'm too big, we take a big hit. So it, we're trying to grow them slow just on grass see how that goes this year has been our wreck you were talking about bar- barber pole worm earlier this year we got more rain in the fall not in the fall in late summer than we normally do and i had a mess and i i usually we have not had those that near that big of issue like we did this year so i don't know back to the drawing board on that I tell you what, you know, this. every time we think we've got one thing figured out, the next thing crops up, right? Or maybe the same thing hits us again. Boy, yeah. That's good, though. You're keeping them until January. Because the other thing is with the sheep market, you know, the beef market, I think, is more steadier seasonally. But lamb market, it really comes... Well, maybe that's not true for the... I, I, I don't know anything about the beef market, so ignore whatever I said on that. But I think lamb market sure comes up, you know, it's starting to come up a little bit now in November. And it should continue to come up about to January, so you're probably doing about as good as you can do, you know, price-wise, if you can graze them into January. If I can graze them into January and they don't get too big, because they start getting too big, I've got to move them earlier. Yeah, that's right. What? So where do yours, where do your market, or where do your sheep end up going? Do you know what markets they serve ultimately? We sell them in Diamond, Missouri, and I'm not sure where they go from there. I assume east, but I don't know where beyond that. Uh, Diamond, it's about an hour and a half east of us, and they've got a pretty good market there. They are, of the sh- of the sheep and goat auctions around us, they're the best. Most of the others are really small, and I've tried a few of them, and I just don't think I get good prices there. I think they're picking them up and selling them somewhere else. Yeah, Diamond, we get a pretty good price, or what I feel is pretty good. I always... I've never in my life sold an animal by the pound and thought I got enough money. So that's just Boy. a fallacy of my thinking. <laughs> Boy, I understand. It's hard to watch them go through auction. Yeah, and, and, and feel feel that way. I do see that too, though, that you've got to take them to an auction that has that has buyers. And if there's not enough sheep to right. go through, yeah, that there may not be sheep buyers or in no competitive bidding. One other option that we have available to us that you may have there on a smaller scale, but uh, the, the ethnic markets have dealers. There's, I think, maybe four primary dealers that service the East Coast ethnic markets. And they're, it's likely that your sheep are, are coming into these markets. I know even in San Angelo, Texas, which is a huge market, something like 40 to 50% of the lambs that go through San Angelo come here to New York and New Jersey. And that, yeah, that blew my mind. But one of the big dealers up here is fantastic. He, he's, he'll tell you, they, I, 
I didn't take sheep to him for a long time because he would always tell me, feed him grain. You know, so I knew he wasn't looking for what I was selling, right? Finally, I took some sheep to him and... And he, he still said, yeah, that you need to feed him grain. <laughs> but <laughs> but he told he gave, he gives me, it gives a fair price. He's a very high integrity man. Uh, did I, it's Kingdom Livestock, Ephraim Stoltzfus oh, yeah. and his son Samuel. They, and they just are extremely knowledgeable. They do extremely high volume. But what's cool there is they they know what the meat markets really are looking for, and they have to know. I mean, they're moving oh, they're yeah. moving trailer loads of sheep at like triple deckers out of there every day. So he can he really helped me, yeah. You know, just understand why the animals are valued, where they're valued. He gave me market price. I didn't have to pay auction commission, and others have good experiences too. So that that's a there's more benefit going to the the private buyer who knows the market for us now. I think than taking them to auction and just getting that price. Our local ag teacher at school where I work, he has been trying to convince me to take sheep to. Like two hours away, there's a buying station, hmm. and I don't fully understand it. And you got to call ahead and stuff, but that's where he's been taking sheep, and he he's doing show sheep, so he's got a little bit different type of weather to sell than I do. Mm-hmm. But he's been pretty happy with that. He's he's been trying to convince me. In fact, just as a tangent, since I brought it up, they he's got an old stock trailer in the ag barn that the kids are working on to turn it into a double decker i keep telling him you know this is going to be great we can use this <laughs> he's like yeah anytime you need it you can that's great yeah because it's so it's so it seems so inefficient to have five thousand pounds of sheep in like a 20-foot trailer versus oh yeah you know it just that's great double deckers are great good for you for selling them on the hoof i I see a lot of that. I mean, a lot of guys sell direct and that's wonderful the guys that can do that which is a whole separate business right I really like focusing just on the production side and re- really honing the the product, the animal on the hoof that's going to then go to a packer and hone that and use the market expertise that's out there to, you know, refine our product into something that's efficient for the market. And then if, if at that point we were deci- to decide to direct market, you know, we'd be going into it with a carcass that was very competitive. For our own purposes, right? So, so there, there's really value in just being really good at your one enterprise and your one segment of a market. So good for you, yeah. We'll we'll see. I I need to make more money. I'm trying to figure it out. I'll say this, you know, we certainly don't make as much money as as I could make in an off farm job. And uh, you know, Laura, Laura, my wife, wonderful, stands by me, manages the household very frugally, um, raises our children, homeschools our children. There's just so much value in this in this style of life for us, and being able to be with the children and work with the children, and no amount of no amount of off farm income could replace the benefit and the joy that we have of of working together as a family on this. So, yeah, we we're just very thankful to God that we can do this. Yeah, there's I come home from work. I I have dreams of not going to my off the farm job, and I can just stay here on the farm and work all day. Which at times I think is a little crazy, but yeah, there's there's something. I come home from work and it's been a stressful day or something. My wife will barely talk to me. She's like, go see the animals. I understand. I enjoy that time out there, whether it's with the sheep or the cattle or, or the goats or just looking at pasture. I just enjoy that time. Isn't it fun in this style of management just to be able to go out there and sit and watch them for a while? Oh, 
I'd gone up other day, my goats, I was moving my meat goats with the electro netting and it got kind of late and I've done something I shouldn't have done. I, I hate to admit it, admit it on a grazing grass podcast where we try and talk about regenerative and managing soil health and land. It's only a few head. I thought I, I was busy, so I just turned them out on the pasture. They are currently running on 75 acres to themselves because I have the cow somewhere else. And I hadn't seen them in a while. So I went up there other day to see them. And I'm, I'm getting ready to bring them down here because I'm going to put them with those ewes and calves that I'm trying to bond. I'm going to put those goats in there with it and try and see if I can make any progress with the goats as well. I went up and I just sat down out there and had a nice little conversation with them. You know, I'm sure they were saying, who are you? We haven't seen you in a while. But I would like to get them where, where I'm doing a better job rotating them as well. Yeah, there's, there's certain times. The great thing for you, without having the off-the-farm job, you, you've got time to go out there and do stuff. And even with that, you've got to have freedom of time so you can do other stuff. And that's so great about the, when you think about adaptive gra- and how you're going to manage it, if you need to put them in a paddock so you have more time, for whatever reason, you can do it. Like, I just put those goats in a 75-acre paddock for a month now. Actually, that's what you shouldn't be doing. But <laughs> but it does give you that freedom to do some stuff, and you're not being real rigid with your time frame and saying, every 24 hours I'm out there doing that. And if you can, wonderful. I mean, that's one of my goals. I, w- I want to do that. But there's certain times, like today, I've been on the go since I got up. When we finish here... I'm going to go do a few chores, but it's pretty dark outside, and I'm glad I don't have to move cows or put up a paddock because I, I got them situated where they can be because I knew today was going to be a day with short or a small amount of time for me. Yeah, that was a fantastic point. Yeah. Well, Nathan, it's time we move to our famous four. Famous four questions are the same four questions we ask of all of our guests. And our very first question what is your favorite grazing grass-related book or resource? I'm going to go with the Bud Williams set that we already mentioned, that that DVD set. And I actually planned to mention that before you brought it up. Yeah, we, we really enjoy the herding and the managing of the sheep that way. And he, that, that he's, he's just been so invaluable. That low-stress handling of animals makes all the difference in my mind. It turns a day of, of working with animals through the pins and stuff um, into a pleasure versus those days that you go out there and you come to a house worn out. You're mad at everyone who was out there. You're mad at yourself a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, it wouldn't, but I've been through some of those days. Uh, Me too. Yes, sir. And uh, just handling them quietly, low stress, understanding that point of balance makes a tremendous difference. In fact, I want to, We've got our our pins set up really good, and I'm not changing them. In fact, we're I say we're not changing them. There's a couple more pins that we're we're putting up to have it finished. But we have a tub, and I would love to have a bud box because on my lease land, I put up a bud box and I use it, and I think it's the greatest thing, and I think it actually works better than the tub. But that's my opinion. I just that low stress handling. It just makes it go so much better. So 
if you're listening out there and you're like, low stress handling, what's he mean? There's a few books out there. Search the web about Bud Williams. You can see lots of examples. It makes a tremendous difference in your quality of your day of working cattle or whatever livestock it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Our second question, Nathan, is what is your favorite tool for the farm? I really like my old John Deere 4x6 Gator. Picked up the 4x6 Gator used, you know, when maybe the second year. I don't remember how soon after we were here. One thing I like about it on the slope, I don't think the kids are able to tip it. So they, they drive it around doing chores, and it, it is so stable. Those flotation tires don't tear up the grass. has pretty good traction. I even put tire chains on it when the hill gets icy. It, it, what, a, what a machine. Thirdly, Nathan, what would you tell someone just getting started? Boy. You know, I had an answer for this, and uh, my mind has told. What what would I tell somebody getting started? I, I would tell them to go ask somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> what would I? What would you tell them, Cal? I, this I'm supposed to have an answer here. I don't have all the answers. I would like to think I have all the answers, but I don't. And just when I think I do, I don't. So I think a couple of things that you probably are thinking of. I think you've contacted a couple people that's doing a great job. And you're learning from them and using them to gain valuable insight to save you time from learning that all on your own. That's one thing I would say. Boy, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. I also like what you said a few minutes ago about you're not always going to move the animals once a day, every day. That's, that's just life. And we need, to be, we need to be okay with that. And we need to do the more important things when we need, when we need to do those things. And then manage the grazing the best we can and get better all the time and get more efficient at it. And, and yeah, go from there. Excellent advice, Nathan. And our last question, Nathan, where can others find out more about you? Uh, we do have a presence on Facebook on www.facebook.com slash P-A-L-A-M-B-Farm. P-A-L-A-M-B farm. Wonderful. Nathan, we appreciate you coming on and sharing. I'm so glad you didn't back out. Been an excellent conversation. Thanks, Cal. Really enjoyed chatting with you. And thanks again for, for all your work and all these podcasts. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. 
Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.